we're going to resume talking about the tribulation. I really think it would be wise for us to just come up to speed, to review where we were last week. The main passage that deals with it is in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25, 26, and 27. This is not the only passage by a long shot, but this is a key passage dealing with the tribulation. I talked to you last week about the fact that this current era, this is what we call, the Bible calls at least, the time of the Gentiles, will, will come to an end with the beginning of the tribulation, which will be a very dramatic time. These verses that are being cited will surely show you that, both as really the beginning of the first three and a half years, as well as the end of the second three and a half years of the tribulation. The tribulation is the next major era of time in God's prophetic calendar. As soon as this time, which has been rather long, 2,000 years nearly already, ends, the tribulation will begin. It will be a period of seven, and, uh, seven years, and as indicated here, it could begin at any time. Just to help you get a view, just a reminder that the end of this current era, the time of the Gentiles, will be punctuated with a rapture. Sometimes people want to put the rapture over here in the middle of the tribulation, and even some at the end. The rapture is going to occur, I believe, at the beginning of the tribulation, which will then usher in the tribulation, which will end with the battle of Armageddon. As I've indicated, it will be seven years long, and it will be a time devoted primarily to chaos, the whole world will be in a state of chaos. These scriptures surely point that out. It's called the day of God's wrath, really the day of judgment. Israel will be the chief focus of God's activity during this period of time. Two, three, and one-half year periods. The first three and a half years will be an era of false peace. Two witnesses will prophesy 1260 days Revelation chapter 11 verse 3 talks about them and the second three and a half years is the part that is called the great tribulation I realize it's easy for Christians even Bible scholars to refer to the entire seven years as the great tribulation really the Bible refers to the last three and a half years with the word or adjective great here the first three and a half years just simply being a part of the tribulation. But the real bad time is going to be at the end. That is the last three and one half years. Revelation also calls this period of time the great tribulation in chapter 24 and verse 21. I want to give you a little summary again of the first three and one half years. Antichrist is going to appear and he is going to make a covenant with Israel. Daniel 9.27 specifically points out this covenant. During this period of time, the, the temple appears on the scene. I do not think the temple will be built before that period of time. I am confident that it will be built before the middle of the tribulation. seems to me that the temple is going to be rebuilt during the tribulation. Both these scriptures are during the first three and a half years. Both these scriptures talk about a scene in heaven and on earth that that are a scene in, let me rephrase that, a scene uh, during the tribulation, during the, 
Revelation to be exact. And in both cases, though the main subject is not the temple, there is reference made to the existing temple, an activity that is going to occur in the temple, particularly activity that's going to occur in the middle of the tribulation. So that within itself is certainly an irrefutable indicator that the temple is going to have to be rebuilt and reestablished, and it seems during that period of time. Two miraculously powered witnesses will go forth to witness, and multitudes will be converted. All of these verses here talk about the multitudes who are converted during these three and a half, initial three and a half years of the tribulation. And now we're to, to the middle. And we're going to start talking about the middle of this tribulation. Antichrist, who will already be on the scene and will be the champion of the world, will be the great peacemaker. He is going, in fact, to assume power greatly on the strength of him being a peacemaker. The, the governments and the peoples of the world are, for the most part, going to succumb to and yield power to Antichrist because they will see him as a peacemaker with the potential of saving the world. The world will be under threat of destruction. I think anybody today that looks around can see that we're there with thermonuclear war threat, the threat of starvation, the threat of pollution, the cutting down of the rainforests and polluting of the seas, the great growth of desert areas around the equatorial belt particularly. All of these factors certainly point to the, the annihilation of the earth. And there is a fear that the United States and Russia, Great Britain, France, perhaps Pakistan or India might one day decide to go to war and somebody would push the button that would fire nuclear weapons and we would get into a fight in this world with nuclear weapons, which of course the world could not tolerate, the world could not stand. And as the threat of rogue nations like the Iranians or the Iraqis or perhaps uh, what were the Taliban in Afghanistan, as these threats grow, there's going to be more and more a groundswell among the peoples and the nations of the earth for a peacemaker, somebody to do something about it, to not allow ourselves as a world to be uh, going up in a blaze of nuclear glory or unglory. So the Antichrist is going to appear as a great peacemaker, assume power upon the strength of being a peacemaker, and at first is going to show great signs of competence in the area of peacemaking. But in the middle of the tribulation, he is going to offer a great abominable sacrifice upon this altar that is in the temple, which as I've indicated will be built. And again, Daniel 9, 27 particularly addresses this event that's right at the end of 1260 days. Here's what will happen. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. How long is that? One week being seven years, each day of the week being one year, 360 day are Jewish years. In the middle of the week, now here we go, halfway through, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate. 
even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. In the middle of the week, he shall go into where the sacrifice will have been reestablished, the Levitical sacrifices, with the priest, with the altars, all that you saw in the Levitical or Mosaic system. This Antichrist will go in there and offer this abomination on the altar that's in the temple. Remember that at the beginning of this seven years, or early on, he will have made a covenant with the Israelis, the Jews, as a peacemaker. And if you watch the news any day, probably just last week, you know that the Jews are in a struggle every day with the Palestinians, and there's war and trouble going on bigger all the time over in that war part of the world. It will be so drastic that the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, <coughs> will make a peace covenant with the Israelis, and they will look at him as being a very uh, uh, important peacemaker for them. But what they don't realize is he will fully betray them right in the middle of this three and a half or this seven year period. Instead of being their friend, instead of being their champion and protecting them and being a peacemaker on their behalf, as this verse points well out, he is going to turn on them 180 degrees and is going right into their most sacred place and he's going to offer an abominable sacrifice. Does anyone remember why the Wailing Wall today in Israel is regarded with such a sacredness as the holiest of all the Israeli or Jewish shrines? Anybody know why it would be considered such? Who knows? Brother Jerry, do you remember that? That's right. Because where that wall goes along, you walk along that wall and a Jew is not allowed to go up on the holy of holies place where the temple was. Even if the, the Muslims did not hold that property, and they do, still the Jew couldn't go up there because a Jew, an ordinary Jew, was not allowed to go in the holiest of holy places lest he die. So the Jews wouldn't go up there even if they could because of fear of being killed on the spot. So they go along the western wailing wall and they pray and they do their type of worship there along the western wailing wall because it is close to the holy place where the temple will be reestablished where the holy of holies room will be and the burnt offering uh, sacrifice will be, the burnt altar will be there and where these sacrifices will be offered. You can you can see that indeed this is holy ground from a Jewish standpoint. Boy, you talk about you talk about wanting that place, they want it, and that temple, when it is built up there, will be their holiest place. They won't be on the wailing wall side then. Their priests will be doing the, the ones who are qualified will be going in there and offering their sacrifices. I mean, and so this will be the epicenter of the Jewish holy ground and when the Antichrist goes in there and offers 
an abominable sacrifice. It will be the worst insult, the worst thing that the Jews could consider happening to them. You talk about an abomination. This will be the signal to the Jews that Antichrist is really not their friend at all. Never has been. He is going to slap them in the face and spit on them in a sense that will tell them, you better flee out of here because instead of being your friend and peacemaker, this Antichrist is your enemy and he's out for your ruin. I have mentioned the word sow up here. That's not in the Bible as such. Let me tell you why I think it's a sow. If you've read the Levitical law, and I've read it many, many times, you must know that a swine is for a Jew as low as you can get in terms of an animal, especially to be consumed. It's one of the unclean animals. And the Jews would not think about a ham sandwich. <laughs> I mean, they don't eat it. Now what they do have is a pig farm up there in the Galilee where they raise swine to sell to Gentiles. And you can go in there and you can eat pork, but they won't do it. And in fact, they won't feel real good about having to prepare it and serve it to you. In the days before the Romans rose to sufficient power, you remember that the Greeks ruled the region? And the Greeks had, had uh, several particular head uh, generals over a couple hundred years period of time. Most of you can probably remember Alexander the Great. But there was another one called Antiochus Epiphanes. And one time in the days of the Maccabees, which is that period between Malachi and Matthew, a 400-year period, and the Maccabee brothers, who were Jewish men, lived in that time and constantly carried on a fight to free the Jews. During that period of time, Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple and he offered a sow on the altar. It was the most infuriating thing to the Jews that had ever occurred in their opinion. And it truly stroked strife and trouble beyond what I am having half the time to tell you here tonight. I personally think that the offering of the sow should be the most abominable offering that anybody could offer and the most uh, awesome insult to a Jew possible and to the Jewish people as a whole possible by Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadow of what Antichrist is going to offer on the temple during the middle of the tribulation. I can't tell you conclusively that it will be a sow, but I do know that it will be some unclean animal, something that is an absolute anathema as far as the Jews are concerned. In Matthew 24, verse 15, you ought to turn and see. This is a New Testament reference that many have a great deal of difficulty understanding. But perhaps with this background I'm sharing with you, this will make better sense. You remember Jesus' testimony here about the end of time. His apostles have come to him and said, Master, what should be the sign of thy coming? The end of time. And he begins to talk about wars and rumors of wars and all those things. And he says in verse 15, When you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, 
Whosoever readeth, let him understand. And then he goes on. Whosoever readeth is you and me. This is not a reference in the Bible for which, uh, of which we should remain ignorant. He said when the abomination of desolation, spoken by who? Daniel the prophet. Where did he speak it? In chapter 9 and verse 27. Shall appear. This is for you a mark, a line in the sand, a point of demarcation. This is a major time for every Jew. It will be the shot over the bow of the ship for you Jews. This says war. This says all out hell on earth as far as Jews are concerned. This is your signal. Remember, these men, the apostles, have come and said, what's going to be the sign? And he goes on and talks about wars and desolation, and he talks about disease and all kinds of troubles, but he said, this is your definitive sign, and you need to know what that definitive sign is, because Daniel said, during the middle of the tribulation, this Antichrist, who's made a covenant for one week with the Jews, and shall confirm it, shall go inside the Jewish temple, and will offer the abomination of desolation. And Jesus said, that abomination of desolation in the middle of the tabernacle and temple, in the middle of the tribulation, is your sign of troubles to come. This will be the, the true revelation of Antichrist. Which one of you men are ready to read? Go ahead. 2 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 2. That ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, uh, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you, by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Whoso opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now ye you know that, that withhold us that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth they might be saved for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they might all be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness you would do well to spend more time in this 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, verses 12 through or 2 through 12 reference it talks about so much and this is not an exegesis of that particular section particularly, particularly but it is to give you more insight into Antichrist he, he is not called Antichrist for nothing or by accident does anyone know what anti means 
against, opposite of, opposed to. What if you're saying, uh, Aaron, I am going with you. That's an affirmative. I'm going to go with you. Well, what if I say, Aaron, I am not going with you. By adding N-O-T, I just turn it around. I mean, it's 180 degrees. It means the very opposite. Antichrist means this man is the opposite of what Christ was. Christ was God in flesh. Antichrist will be Satan in flesh. Christ was God. Antichrist will be the devil. Christ was good. Antichrist will be evil. Everything good and everything you can say about Jesus Christ, you have to say the opposite about Antichrist. He will be the worst person who has ever lived on the face of this earth. He will make Adolf Hitler and Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, all these, Nikita Khrushchev, they'll all look wonderful compared to him. He will be terrible. And he will not appear, remember, to be terrible at the beginning. Why, if he came on the scene to start, terrible as he will be, he would be rejected by the world. But he will come on the scene as a peacemaker, deluxe, capable of solving the world's problems. And once he gets the power in his hand, in the middle of that tribulation, he will have sufficient powers granted to him and control over armies and police forces and the powers of this world, once he gets that power in his hand, all of a sudden the true colors will come forth because Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. Matthew, John 8 says so. Jesus said it in John 8, what, 44, 43. He, Satan, is deceivable and so what he will do in Antichrist will be hide his true colors until he's ready to make his move. And boy, when he makes his move, he will make it in a dramatic fashion with this sacrifice. And that will be his revelation. Verse 4, look at it again. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitting in the temple of God showing himself that he is God, going in here, offering this sacrifice, this abominable sacrifice, and claiming that he is God. God, in the Greek language, theos, the Greeks had the idea of this super being, or these super beings, these gods, they would call them theos, and one particular ruler over the bunch. That's the word that Antichrist is going to apply to himself. I am Theos. What is he saying? He's not saying, I am Jehovah. I am the God of the Bible. He's saying, I am the human, the man God. He, Antichrist, will be the exaltation and the very apex of humanism, which says, there is no deity there is no Jehovah out there. But man is the highest being there is. And man doesn't need a God. 
Like Nietzsche, that German psychologist said, God is dead. We've risen now in men to a position where we realize we don't need a crutch, a God out here. We're men. We're smart enough. We don't have to have a God. God is dead. Throw him out. Man is God. And Antichrist is going to say, yeah, that's right. What is there that your Jehovah could do that I can't do? For after all, remember, he will do miracles and all kinds of lying wonders so that he'll deceive people. They'll say, well, yes. Antichrist, this person is doing all these things that Moses did in Egypt and that was supposed to be under the power of Jehovah, and he's just a man. He's God. We worship this man, this God, this Theos down here. You can't imagine how awful this man is. Who will be the very epitome of Satan? And this will be his true revelation. An assassination attempt will be uh, brought against him, and he is going to be wounded with a mortal wound which he will miraculously survive. Let's listen to the Bible in Revelation chapter 13 describe what happens here in the first eight verses. And I stood upon the sands of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as a mouth as a mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And and there was given unto the mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war against the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. All right. You see the power, the miraculous, devilish power that Antichrist will have. And he will have already established himself as this uh, superman. And he will be claiming that he is a god. We don't need a man god. I mean, a, a deity god. We have a mortal. And he's God. We can do anything. We can handle it. I can handle it. I am the man. It shouldn't be real hard for you to see how the world will swallow that when you understand that there are millions who swallowed Mormonism and they say, the Mormons do, that their God is just an old man. That's their idea. Their idea of God. He's just an old man. Somebody's been around a long time, smarter than all the rest of you because he's been here. That's essentially what Antichrist is going to be doing. I'm just a man. But look where I am. I'm in Theos, our God ring here, our, our region here. And whenever he is assassinated, I mean, when somebody comes up with a wound, an assassination wound, that 
everybody knows nobody could survive, not even Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> or the, uh, what's the guy that uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? What? Indiana Jones. Must be against Indiana there somehow. Anyway, Indiana Jones. I mean, nobody could do this. But Antichrist does. Antichrist survives. This mortal wound. And as he comes forth from this mortal wound, he comes forth with more powers, more lying wonders, more authority, it seems, than he ever had. So that the nations of the world realize we need to follow this guy and they would be afraid to oppose him. How many people did you see opposing Adolf Hitler when he got sufficient power over there? Ingrid, are you in church here tonight? Ingrid is just a little girl, Ingrid Young, in our church. Ask her how many. What happened to people who opposed Adolf Hitler? If it got out that they were against him, they were the, on the list to be assassinated or killed soon. So, I mean, all of a sudden, fear grips people, and they're afraid to let any opposition they might have, you know. Listen, Adolf Hitler will be like a drop in a 55-gallon drum compared to Antichrist. All over this world, people are going to be afraid of Antichrist, fearful of what might happen if they oppose him, particularly in this Western world. So, this wound will have a profound effect upon the people who are in the world at that time. Antichrist will become a ruthless dictator and will impose this mark of the beast. Now, I know that most of you in this room tonight have probably heard about the mark of the beast and know something about it. I think we would be remiss in this little study if we didn't take at least a little time and review it. So I want you to listen to what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, starting now with verse 11. I told another beast, coming up out of the earth, and had two horns like a lamb, and spake as a dragon. And he exercises power over the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by any means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast would uh, should both speak and cause that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of his of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. Six sixty-six. The number of the mark of the beast. 
as is mentioned right here in this uh, 18th verse. That passage, it seems to me, is so graphic and so dramatic that it bears little uh, need for explanation or elaboration. But I must just tell you that the technology of our age already, not to mention what might be coming, has made implementation of this mark of the beast a much more readily doable thing than most people ever imagined. Even when I was just a young uh, boy, there was lots of talk about the mark of the beast and how it would be implemented and the palm of the hand and the forehead. And I remember uh, preachers and elders around talking about the disfiguration on the palm of the hand and on the forehead and, and just uh, like you could mark, walk around and, yeah, you got it, you got it, you don't, you got it, you don't. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, you must understand, in, in 1963, I moved to McGregor, Texas, to Gatesville, Texas, and worked at McGregor in an installation for North American Aviation Company called Rocketdyne, where we made the uh, propellant, rocket propellant for Sidewinder and Sparrow missiles. And I was down in the lab and where we tested those uh, explosives. And one of the things we would do is very carefully cut some of that rubber-like propellant into little uh, strips that we called dog bones. Look just like one of these you'd give your pooch. And it was so fixed where we could put it in a machine that would pull it and eventually break it. And so we would measure what was called the tensile strength. And we had some numbers that we would calculate on a calculator. You know, punch them in and it would tell us the tensile strength with these uh, mathematical figures of that dog bone and thus of that propellant and thus what it would endure and stand at certain pressures. The calculator that I used for, cal for calculating dog bones uh, tensile strength of the rocket propellant was about this wide and about this tall set up on the desk and it had all kinds of keys and I'd sit there on that thing and do it. I have in my Franklin planner a book marker. It's about that thick, it's clear, and it has a little section in it and it's a calculator that'll do much more than that big one would do. Just what's happened in technology. And boy, the technology's been going up. I mean, I think you know that right now, scanners are not a problem anymore, it seems. And I've been reading along, as you probably have in the newspapers and some of the journals we get, about the ability of the uh, scientific and medical world to identify every little baby with a number. In fact, when your little baby is born, they can inject into your child a computer chip into the blood system that will float through your body that a scanner can pick up and identify who that baby is anywhere in the world. I used to think about where you would hide from Antichrist. And maybe if you went way into the mountains and got in a cave back there and just got became a recluse, maybe you could hide because after all, when... He implements the mark of the beast, and you have to either take it or he's going to kill you, probably have your head cut off with the guillotine. 
you're probably going to think, man, I don't want that, so I'm going to go hide. I'm talking about people who would be here. And I thought, where could you hide? There were some people in a place called Afghanistan that thought they could hide in caves. And what did our military do from airplanes over? They shot smart bombs right up in those caves. They could tell with, with the different kinds of equipment uh, that there's somebody, you know, there's a live warm body inside a cave way back in there. You know, I'm just telling you this. If you think the Bible's not true about this matter here, you've got to have your head in the sand. This mark of the beast won't be a problem. I don't know exactly how he's going to do it. But what I do know is that everybody is going to be required to take the mark, which will be identifiable by perhaps a scanner or whatever means he might have in their forehead or in the palm of their hand. And everybody who don't take the mark of the beast is going to be killed by the Antichrist. He can get to them, and a bunch of them are going to be. Revelation 13 there, what is it, verse 11, talks about those who are beheaded for the cause of Christ in the tribulation period. So, this is a reality. Nobody's going to be able to get away from the Antichrist. Boy, if I wasn't saved, you know what I'd do? I'd run to a preacher or a soul winner or somebody who could tell me how to get saved because I wouldn't want to be even threatened to go through this thing and have to face what's going to happen to people during the tribulation. It is, especially in the last half, going to be truly a hell-on-earth place. And people will have to take the mark of the beast. And I've heard people uh, theorize a long time over 666 and try to figure out who it might be. If I were you, I wouldn't worry too much about 666. What I would concern myself with is about however it's marked and however you look at it, it's reality, and he's going to be here, and you're going to be in trouble if you wait and don't get saved. Matthew 24 and especially verses 13 and on from 16 through 22 can be properly understood, I think, only in light of what I've been talking. So I think this is the right time for us to look back to Matthew 24. So find Matthew 24 and verse 13, which says, But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Dear friends, it has been my personal experience to talk to a number of folks who tried to use this scripture to say, after you're saved, if you don't live good enough and endure faithful, you will be lost. They deny, really, the eternal security of the believer. I'm happy to tell you tonight that once you're saved, you're always saved. If you trust Christ as your Savior, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and you will go to heaven whether you endure to the end or not. This verse in your Bible is not talking about people who get saved and can only maintain their salvation if they endure to the end. This verse of Scripture is right in the middle of a discussion about the tribulation and about the Jews in particular in the tribulation and not about their salvation from sin's penalty, but about their survival as an individual and as a nation. And it'll only be those who endure to the end who will be saved in the sense of delivered, because, by the way, it'll be at the end of the tribulation that the national conversion of Israel will occur. This is not a verse that's somehow suggesting, let alone proving, 
that you have to keep on being good after you're saved or that you'll be lost. No, this verse is talking about Israel when the tribulation starts, and particularly the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, and that God will deliver the nation of Israel at the end, but those who do not survive to the end will not experience that salvation. Now look at verse 16. You need to hear it. Let them, or then let them, which be in Judea, flee unto the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to those that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And verse 22, except these days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. They'll be, what, three and a half years, was it 1260 days? That's how long it'll be. Now, the elect's sake. This word elect is used in the Bible in several applications. Um, one of the, the main ways that the word elect is used in scriptures is to talk about the nation of Israel. They are God's elect people. God called Abraham out. He separated the Hebrews as a, a special people and he made promises to them. He made the the uh, promise to David, you know, of the Davidic covenant with David and about David ruling on the throne of Israel and in the millennium. We've already talked about the millennium. In terms of a national people or a nation, Israel is God's elect. This place, Jesus Christ is talking to the Jews, talking to his apostles. Every one of those guys were Jews. He's talking about them. They're, they're the elect. And he's saying, except for the elect's sake, nobody would be saved. These days shall be shortened the elect saved. Don't get to thinking that these are all the predetermined lost people that are going to get saved or some elect in the sense that the Calvinists might use the word. He's not talking about that at all. I mean, you just look at the context. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tribulation. He's talking about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. And he's warning them that, that it's going to be a terrible time. In fact, so terrible that he says, don't even, if you're on your roof repairing the roof, don't even go down inside to get any clothes. Get out of here and flee to the mountains. Woe unto you if you're having a child or have a baby and all the misery you're going to know. This is going to be the worst time you can imagine for then shall be great tribulation such as never was and never shall be again. This is going to be the worst time on earth. If you don't understand, Matthew 24 is discussing what's going to happen in the tribulation, and particularly the last half of the tribulation, and is a discussion primarily to the Jews about what's going to happen to them. And you start taking this section, which is talking to the Jews and about what's going to happen to them in the tribulation, and you lift these verses out and start applying them to save people in any generation, you're going to get your theology in a ball of snakes like that. And you won't know the top from the bottom. The Bible says we are to rightly divide the word of truth. And there's a right way to do it. And one of the ways we do that 
is we go to the context, do we not? And we don't wrest things out of their context and twist them around. We see who he's talking to, what he's talking about, what era he's talking, and we follow the logic of God right down in that era, and then it becomes clear what he's talking about. And here he's talking about the tribulation, and particularly the middle of the tribulation, when the Antichrist reveals himself through this abominable sacrifice and declares himself God and open war on Hebrews. All of our time's out. We'll continue. Let's stand.